Hello again. This is Pastor Trey from Powell Butte Christian Church with the Powell Butte Sermon uh, Series, the Sunday Sermon, sorry, Sunday Sermon Podcast. Um, and just so you know, uh, there are other ways to uh, listen or watch what we're doing um, here at uh, Powell Butte Christian Church in Powell Butte, Oregon. Um, there's actually, you can watch our services on our YouTube channel. And there's even a little note that shows you kind of when the when the uh, sermon actually begins, at which point of the service, and so you could just kind of jump to that if you would uh, care to do that. Uh, if you really want to see uh, how it looks like on a Sunday morning, otherwise, you know, it's great to have you join us in with the podcast because uh, all of the information that we uh, give on Sunday morning, we actually put uh, here on our podcast for our website as well. And I want to thank Lisa Welly and Steve Pittman for uh, helping get things ready to roll. Uh, our church just signed up for a uh, kind of a Christian Netflix type of program online called Right Now Media, and they're not paying me to, to uh, be a commercial for them. It's a, it's a great program. It costs churches a little bit, but everybody in that church actually can then log on and, and watch Christian videos, Christian devotions, sermons, kids pro- programming. It's pretty amazing, Right Now Media. So this last week I was watching a, uh, a video of uh, a, an author, a speaker, that I actually really like. Um, I agree with him on a lot of things. His name is Tony Evans. And, and as I was watching a, this video of Tony Evans, I, I thought, a, a thought came to me about how we prepare for something important. So imagine if somebody told you that, uh, you know, with all the stuff going on in the world right now, with Russia and Ukraine and... Uh, China and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, if somebody told you that the time has now come, that Jesus was going to come back this week, and it, it's going to be a little different than everybody had thought, he's actually going to come uh, one by one. And, but he, and he's going to start with you. He's going to come to your house within, like, by the end of this week. He's going to come to your house. Now, what would your heart be concerned about? Would you be concerned about how messy your place is? Uh, uh, would you make sure that it looked like you were doing your devotionals by bringing a big family Bible out and dusting it off and putting it on the coffee table? Um, would there be, once he shows up to your house, would there be any rooms that you'd be embarrassed for him to go into and, and check out? You know, it's funny. I went to San Jose Bible College. It's now William Jessup University in Rockland, California. But it uh, it had been established in, uh, back in uh, the 30s uh, there in um, San Jose, California. And, uh, you know, I, I was there for four years, and so I got to see something on a regular basis. So you could always tell when the board of directors of the Bible College was visiting the campus because all of a sudden everything looked a little bit cleaner around the campus. Things that had been broken for a while had got fixed, right? Um, you, you were watching the professors, and they were wearing a little bit nicer clothes than they normally would. But, but the biggest tip-off of all was uh, in the cafeteria. Yeah, you, you'd go into lunch, and all of a sudden it wasn't the normal lunch. It was like a really nice lunch, and, and you didn't even have to see the board members there to know, ah, I guess the board members are here this week, you know. Because if, if something important is happening, if somebody important is coming, we want to prepare. We want to prepare. So how would you prepare if you knew that Jesus was coming? You know, Tony Evans was saying that, you know what, your expectations will affect your behavior. If you're expecting something like, like a dignitary to show up or if Jesus to come back, then that's going to affect your behavior. It's kind of like the bumper sticker that I saw one time that says, Jesus is coming back. Uh, look busy. Well, 
guess what? That, that bumper sticker is correct. Jesus is coming back. And though I've never been one who was obsessed with the end times and the signs of the end times, I, I got to tell you, uh, with all the stuff that's going on in the world right now, if Jesus came back right now, let's just say I wouldn't be shocked. I'm not telling you that he is, but if he came back right now, I would not be shocked. But no matter when he is coming back, the fact remains that he is coming back. And that thought prompted the people way back in the the days of the early church, these people who gave their lives to his kingdom, that prompted them, the, the knowledge that he is coming back, it prompted them to do something to be at work in God's kingdom, to experience um, a renewed purpose for their life, to, to undergo life change, to truly be submitting to uh, the leadership of Jesus and the, the church that he was building. So now a couple weeks ago, we began this series in, in the Gospel of Luke. And it began with an announcement that Jesus was on his way. The Messiah was going to come. But before the Messiah came, there was going to be a forerunner, uh, a messenger, if you will, who was going to prepare the way so that uh, people could be prepared for the provision of hope to come. And even before God told Mary about uh, conceiving and, and having a, a, a boy, uh, you know, being the, the one who would give birth to the, the Messiah, if you recall, God actually, before he did that, he sent a, an angel to an elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to tell them that they were going to have a, a son. And he said that your son is going to be the forerunner. The, the announcer, the, the one that would prepare the people as he was announcing the coming of the Messianic king. Well, that boy, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, is going to be the one that we read about uh, in the chapter today. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Luke uh, chapter 3, and uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's little baby boy has now grown up to be a man that we now know of as John the Baptist. So if you're in your Bibles and you want to go to Luke chapter 3, this is what, how that chapter begins. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, there's a lot of names there, and a lot of people get glazed over when they see those names. But those names are actually really, really important because it pinpoints in time these things that are real, okay? Luke is not making this up. Remember, uh, he said as he began this gospel, he says, I've set out to create an orderly account, uh, and I've done some careful investigation. Well, talk about careful investigation. He's talking about the guy in charge of all of Rome, Tiberius. He's talking about then on, on a lower level, uh, the, uh, the, the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And then he's talking about Herod uh, being kind of the puppet guy um, uh, who was king of the Jews, and he reigned in Galilee. And then he actually talks about Annas and Caiaphas, who were serving as the high priest in the city of Jerusalem uh, for the, the people of, uh, of Israel. So you, you see it kind of funnels down from the top down. But every single one of those people, I can show you how corrupt they were. It was a very, very dark time that Jesus came into. Um, Hi, uh, let's see, let's start with uh, the emperor Tiberius. He wanted to be worshipped as God. Pilate 
would be a governor that would use intimidation to keep uh, the people in check. Herod, who is, quote-unquote, the king of the Jews, was essentially, like I said, a Roman puppet, a, a guy who became increasingly paranoid and who killed his family and, and his kids when he, when he felt threatened. And then you see Annas and Caiaphas, who will one day pull the trigger uh, to, uh, for, for a mock trial, a kangaroo court, if you will, that would condemn a man uh, based on no evidence whatsoever, but uh, just trying to get rid of him because they didn't want to lose their religious power. Okay? So at every level, from the top down, there is corruption. Uh, so essentially, you're run-of-the-mill politician, right? Yeah. Now, these are the people who are going to be involved in um, Jesus' death and in John the Baptist's death, okay? And, and it just shows how dark the world was. Luke continues in verse 3, And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be, uh, and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All righty, so we, we saw Simeon last week seeing the salvation of God in this little boy. Well, uh, John's message is the Messiah is coming. The salvation of God is coming, and, and I'm getting you ready for that. Now, about five years ago when we were looking at uh, our youth pastor, we had gone up to the church that he was serving at at the time and uh, just kind of was seeing what you know, his, his ministry was like. And, and uh, they had a brand-new pastor who was um, beginning uh, uh, preaching through the book of Mark. And he talked about John the Baptist, and he said, you know, basically John the Baptist his job was to make it easy for people to, to come to the Messiah. As he was preparing the people, he, he was trying to make it as easy as they could to come and, and recognize and follow the, the Messiah, to follow Jesus. He made it easy for people to come to Jesus, and then that pastor said something very convicting. He says, you know what, we do a horrible job today, we Christians, at making things easy for people to come to Jesus. No, we throw up hoops, we throw up extra steps. We add stuff to, 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 to the, the faith issue. And, it, it, you know, it, we got to understand this. Look, the way that we conduct our lives is important because a, a word or an action that does not reflect either the truth of Scripture or the character of Christ can be devastating to our witness. We add so much to the gospel message how many things we require people to do and hoops for them to jump through before they can receive salvation? And that's not biblical, folks. That's not biblical. We are ne now, we are never called to compromise the truth. In fact, you're going to see in a few verses later, John doesn't pull punches uh, when he, he, he's presenting the truth to those people who need to prepare themselves, right? But it is important that we present only the truth, that we avoid adding extra steps uh, that human religion would want to tack on um, to, to what it means to be a Christian. So here we see John proclaiming the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And, and he's trying to prepare people for this provision of hope that was coming in the Messiah. And he's saying you need to be aligning your heart with the heart of God. And that's what, when Luke says he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins means, it's like I'm proclaiming that you need to align your heart with where God's heart is. And in that statement, by the way, we see two very churchy words, uh, two churchy ideas that I think 
should be studied more carefully. Those words, baptism and repentance. I want to take them one by one real quick. First of all, baptism is a transliteration. It's not a translation. If we wanted to translate the word from one, you know, from the Greek to the English, we would actually use the word immerse, not baptism. But what we did is we took the Greek word baptizo and we just created a new word. And that's what it's called transliteration. Okay, so it was baptizo in the Greek. We're going to call it baptize in the, the English. And poof, we have a new word. Um, baptizo, baptizo in the Greek simply meant dunked or sunk or immersed. It, it was used to describe ships, uh, cargo ships that had uh, out in the Mediterranean Sea had sunk and were now at the bottom of the uh, ocean. They, those ships had been baptizo, right? They had been immersed. They had been dunked. They had gone under the water. But even though that was the literal translation, even to the Jews, the concept of immersion was, was used as a symbol uh, of something else, something higher, something more spiritual. The Jews would actually use it to, um, to baptize non-Jews who wanted to be part of Judaism, who wanted to convert to Judaism. Well, because uh, you know, be, in their prior life before conversion, they were not following all of the Old Testament laws. They needed to be cleansed. And so the Jews saw this as a, a symbol of washing away sins and being cleansed, getting a new slate so that you can start over. And that's what they would require non-Jews to go through if they wanted to become Jews. Well, what's irony here is is that John is saying, well, you know what? This thing that you're making non-Jews do, I'm going to make you guys do. In fact, it's a symbol for everyone, uh, even Jews, to wipe the slate clean in a public preparation for the coming Messiah. Essentially, baptism was a sign of repentance. Now, Jesus commanded us to as we are making disciples, that we are to baptize them, right? That's what we read of in Matthew 28. Jesus commanded us to baptize people. And similar to the baptism here in in Luke chapter 3, you can see that baptism as a symbol of something spiritual. Yes, you are still being cleansed. It's a symbol of being forgiven, showing that any imperfections that was on you, any, any bit of dirt on you is now washed away. But once Jesus had been crucified and buried and then resurrected three days later, as Paul would note in many of his writings, now baptism takes on another meaning, an even deeper spiritual significance because it connects us, it identifies us, those of us who are baptized, with Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There it is. We were therefore buried with him. So there's death and there's burial. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you see that Paul is connecting baptism now after Jesus had been, uh, had been crucified and had been buried and then was resurrected, that we too are identifying with that death, burial, and resurrection when we are baptized. Now, if you have professed faith in Jesus, you should know this. Listen up. If you have already said, I put my faith in Jesus, I trust him. As you read through the New Testament, there is never once, never once an instance of an unbaptized believer. 
You don't have people going around saying, well, yeah, I believe, but I'm not going to get baptized. No, in fact, that was an immediate step of obedience. Uh, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. They would uh, be saved, and they would immediately see water, and they say, we want to be baptized. They, they took this immediate step of obedience. Now, why is that important? Because if Jesus is your Savior, then he needs to be your Lord as well. And if he says, I want you to be baptized, then by making that step of obedience immediately means that you, are, you really do have a repentant heart, and you're willing to make Jesus not just your Savior, not just a free ticket to heaven, but uh, He is your Lord. He, you are ready for Him to be in charge of your life right then and there. Well, I, I don't understand it all yet. I, I'm going to wait till I understand. No, they didn't wait till they understood. They understood that baptism was incredibly essential if you're going to demonstrate a life of faith in Jesus. And by the way, that's where we stand as a church. Baptism, we say, is of the essence of what it means to put our faith in Jesus in a very practical way that we're going to obey, and we're going to obey as, as we proclaim him Lord and as we proclaim him Savior, and we are saved. We get, them, we get you baptized right then and there. We're saved by God's grace. We're not saved by the water. We're saved by God's grace. We are saved through our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. But we are baptized so that we could identify with him. It's, it's an evidence of something has changed. Ownership of my life has changed. So that's baptism. But even as I talked about baptism, you heard me talk about repentance a lot because baptism is a sign or an evidence of repentance. So what is repentance? Well, uh, you know, some people will tell you that repentance was a, a military term that meant about face, which just means turn around. And that, that would be true. They, they would use it in that sense. But if you looked actually at the Greek word, it's the, the Greek word metanoia, meta meaning to change, and noia meaning the mind. So ultimately, a repentance is a change in the way that you think. By the way, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he says, if you don't want to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, if you want to be transformed, you need to renew your mind, which means you need to change the way you think. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from the thought patterns that, that led you down your own path, and you start to begin to think through the wisdom of God's Spirit, and now you're on the path that's going to lead you closer and closer and closer and closer to God. Well, John understood that if you're going to do that, the path needs to be clear of all obstacles, right? We need to make this path easy to walk down. Uh, so in other words, if something is getting in the way of you following God uh, to, to, to change your mind, uh, it's one thing to be sorry, but you, you need to say, you know what, if this is getting in, in my way, I'm going to get rid of it. If something in your life has risen to a higher priority than Jesus in your life, you've got to tear that down. Um, if something is worn away and created a valley or created a pothole, you need to fill it in. Uh, this, is, this is what Pastor Scott was talking about a few weeks ago when he was talking about aligning your life and making the adjustments that you need to in order to stay the course that God has, has laid out for us. So... John's audience knew this. When they heard him talking about repentance, they knew that he wasn't just telling them to be sorry. I think a lot of times people think, well, I, I repented. That means I, I said I was sorry. Well, no, it's, it's not just enough to be sorry. Okay? It, it's, 
It's um, like, like the, uh, a couple years ago, we talked about the art of the Christian apology. It's saying, I'm sorry, yes, but now I am willing to do what I need to do to make things right. That's what the, the art of the Christian apology is. It's being sorry, but it's being willing to change your actions. Now, how do we know that the people who heard John actually understood this? Well, look at their questions. Look, look at the interaction that, that John has with these people, starting in verse 10. The crowd said, well, what should we do? Uh, see, they ask, what should we do? They, they understood that there was something to do. And he said, well, if you've got two tunics and there's somebody who doesn't have any tunics, then you need to share with him. And, and same thing with food. If you've got food and somebody else doesn't have food, then let them have some food. Well, then the tax collectors, verse 12 says, well, what should we do? There's that word again. They understood that there was an action required in repentance. What should we do? And he, he said, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. And then the soldiers in verse 14 said, well, what should we do? Even the soldiers understood there, there was a requirement of action if you're going to repent, right? And John said, well, don't extort money from anybody uh, by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. See, repentance does begin with an inner recognition that something isn't right, but it drives us to ask, what now do I do? The Bible talks about a difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, Paul would say godly sorrow brings repentance. So godly sorrow is good. Being sorry uh, and being, uh, having a godly kind of sorrow for what you have done brings repentance. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death, he says. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? Listen to this. Their, their lives now reflected um, these things because they had had godly sorrow. They were sorry for what they had done. Now they have an earnestness. And I think that that means earnestness to do the right thing. Eagerness to clear yourself. Eagerness to say, you know, I have a, I, I have a short account with God that I am I'm constantly uh, admitting and confessing where, where I'm falling short and, and asking God to come in and help me. And um, Indignation. Uh, that would be indignation of, of my own sin. Like, I, I can't believe I did that again. I'm upset at myself because I, I know that God has called me to do better. What alarm, what affection, what concern, what readiness, Paul says, to see justice done. He goes, that's in your life now because you have repented, because you have had godly sorrow. All of these things now are in your life that help you stay on track. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means, first of all, that the, the soil in our heart must be fertile so that when God's Spirit comes in and plants this garden in your life, a garden that he cultivates and a garden that he prunes and weeds and a garden that he makes grow, you have made it ready. You have prepared for that garden to grow. That's essentially what repentance is and what it looks like. Uh, if you've got two tunics, you need to give something to somebody that doesn't have any, any tunic. It means you're not cheating people out of things that are rightfully theirs. It's, it's, it's meaning that you are willing to be content with what God has given to you. Do you see? There's actually action that accompanies this belief, this, this inner recognition that something is not right. That's what repentance is. And, and, and so the thing that's really important for us to see is that both baptism and repentance, both of those things are heart issues. So the person who says to me, well, I, 
I got baptized when I was a baby. I'm saved. I, I don't need to be baptized again. I, I refu- or I refuse to be baptized. It, well, that's just like the person who says, well, God gives me grace. I don't need to repent. Well, both of those statements, I don't need to be baptized. I don't need to repent. Those are in opposition to a heart that accepts in faith both the sacrifice of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. There was a group of people who came down to watch Jesus preach and, and baptize in the Jordan River whose hearts were not there. They, they were not ready to actually repent. And so to those people, John had some harsh words. Uh, let's look back at verses 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. Uh, that would be like relying on their uh, religious traditions, um, their, their bloodline that would lead them to um, Abraham because they were Jews. And John says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, those are pretty harsh words. And who is John talking to? Well, these are the ones who thought that they could just show up and listen to a few sermons and even go through baptism. Yeah, they were willing to be baptized, but they, they then thought that that was it. I just show up, I listen to a few sermons, I get baptized, and everything's going to be all right. But they have no real intention to make Jesus Lord. They, they have no real intention to really giving their life to Jesus. These people are not Christians. The people who are not willing <laughs> to make Jesus Lord, Jesus would say, you are not really my followers. I don't know you. John calls these guys sons of snakes. And I, I wonder if he was meaning to connect them to that ancient serpent, the devil, by calling them that. Or, or maybe he was just referring to the, the fact that uh, when there's a brush fire, snakes will come out of that brush fire, but not because they wanted to move, but because they didn't want to get burned, and they're still crawling on their belly, and they're now going to try to find another place where they can lie in wait to, to, to strike at somebody and, and, and bite them. Now, outside of the refusal to acknowledge your need to repent, to turn from your sinful ways, to, to say, I, I, I don't need to repent, I don't need to be baptized... Are there any other signs that we could look for in ourselves that would be evidence of being a part of this crowd? Uh, and by the way, if we ask ourselves these questions and we find out that we are part of this crowd, then my, my prayer is, as, as your pastor, is that you would then want to do something differently. If you truly want to see this be the year of the Lord and, and not just, again, the year of you, you would do well in asking yourselves three questions. Number one, are you more concerned and fixated on other people's sins than you are of your own sins? You know, that's something that Jesus had to confront all the time in his ministry with the religious leaders. They, they would see the flaws in other people, and that made them feel self-righteous. And that self-righteousness, folks, if that begins to grow in us because we see the flaws in others but we're not willing to, to look at what is going on in our own life that is wrong, that sense of self-righteousness makes God puke. Number two, have you been so hurt by other people that you feel now that you've got the right to lash back and get, try to get even with them? You know, Paul uh, would remind us that God has reserved the right to vengeance. And whatever we might want to do in retaliation to that other person, folks, number one, it will never really resolve the issue, okay? Um, 
And, and it's not really there for reconciliation. It's just to make you feel better and, and the other person worse. And, and there's really no sense of love and, and wanting to, to make things right. And number three, it's never going to be as complete your retaliation to hurt the other person. That will never be as complete as when God brings about perfect justice one day in their life. So that's the second question to ask. Are you more concerned with other people's sins than your own? Have you been hurt by people so much that you feel like you've got the right to get even with them? And number three, are you avoiding taking responsibility for the times you have hurt others and you have then damaged your relationship with God? Oh, in our modern world, we perfect the art of denial of personal responsibility. Every problem out there is somebody else's fault. Every violation says, well, you know, I, I, maybe there's a loophole. Maybe I can get around this. Everything that once we would be ashamed of, we now label it with a new name so we don't have to be ashamed of it anymore. Before the change of direction happens, though, there must be a change of desire, a change of heart. Recently, a, a group of us men that are studying First uh, John uh, in that study, we saw three major things that God wants to grow in the life of every believer. And John listed those traits in this order. He, he, he said there needs to be obedience, there needs to be love, and there needs to be truth. See, the, the evidence of a saved life, our obedience to the commands of Christ, and, and having this abiding love for people, and then having this uh, strong adherence to the truth. Now, my advice was to actually embrace those traits backwards, in other words, I, I was saying, you know what, it makes a whole lot more sense. That first, you've got, you got to make sure that you are committed to the truth that Jesus really is Lord. Because if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all, okay? Until you come to the understanding that, uh, to that understanding that Jesus is Lord, and then admitting uh, that you are not the Lord, then nothing else is really going to make sense. It's not going to fall into place. You've got to start with that truth. But then once you submit to that truth, now there begins to be, because of Jesus' Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, there begins to be a change in our hearts, a change in our character. And the fruit of God's spirit of love begins to grow as we continue to abide in Jesus. And it cultivates, as we cultivate that relationship with God, he begins to do way more than just save you to get to go to heaven he changes you to actually live a different kind of life right now. It's a, it's a, a, a character of love gets developed inside of our lives. And then, guess what? Very naturally, or maybe should I say supernaturally, you know what happens? Obedience. Obedience, heartfelt, eager obedience, like what Paul was talking about uh, when, when, when these people had turned and, and their repentance actually uh, allowed, the, this godly sorrow allowed them to have this eagerness, this earnestness. Not wanting to do wrong, wanting to do right, because your heart has been changed and your heart was changed because your allegiance had changed. He is Lord, so there is love, and now you can live the way that he wants you to do. So although John was calling folks to baptism and repentance, Really, he was calling them to a change in their heart. Because if they were not uh, ready to, to receive the Messiah of, for who he really was, not some kind of, well, I want him to be this, but I don't want him to be that. Jesus came to become Savior and Lord. Then John knew that baptism and repentance would mean nothing. 
And that's why Luke concludes with this amazing message pointing to Jesus. He says in verses 15 and following, as, people, as the people were in expectation and they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John said to them, listen, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, wow. I mean, consider this. John's talking to people about baptism and repentance, and they say, wow, you must be the Messiah. Why did they assume he was the Messiah if he's talking about baptism and repentance? Well, because his teaching was so different than the teaching of the religious uh, leaders of that day. This was something different. This has something to do with your heart, not just your actions. This calls us into a different kind of relationship with God rather than just being, uh, you know, obedient so that we don't get hurt. This is actually something that is meaningful, can actually change people's lives, change people's perspectives on how they're supposed to approach their spirituality. But John's clear. He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Yes, you're right. The Messiah is going to bring about this. In fact, you know what? I'm baptizing you with water, but there's going to be somebody who comes in that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and will actually have the ability and the right and the authority to baptize people with fire And that kind of fire is that burning up of the chaff that is worthless. So Jesus does come onto the scene. And and guess what? He uh, he begins his ministry with the declaration, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we, we are told that his disciples began to baptize people as well. And just as John warned the people that the Messiah wasn't going to be all hugs and rainbows, Jesus did say in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will perish. So bottom line. People are still today being called into that kind of preparation. It's a public preparation. It is something that people can actually see. You can demonstrate this change of life because of your repentance and because of your baptism. Because there's still on our lives today a command to return to God. Many of you have said, okay, that's fine. That's all good. I've been baptized. Okay, that's fine. You've been baptized. Have you repented? Are you really truly on the path that God wants you to be on? Or did you just kind of see your baptism as a way to not have to go to hell? You know, when you proclaim in baptism that you identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that means you are living a new life, no longer to live for yourself but for him. Now, some of you haven't even been baptized. And you need to do that. If you have expressed faith, if you have trusted Jesus to be your Savior, then you need to make him your Lord. If he says, I want you to be baptized, then you need to be baptized. And if you were baptized as a baby, that wasn't your choice. That was awesome that your mom and dad wanted to set you on the right path and start you out right by baptizing you as a baby. But ultimately, the people who were baptized in the the Bible were believers. You weren't believing anything as a baby. And so as an adult, if you need to be baptized out of obedience to identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And folks, that's what he commands us to do. And there is so many reasons to do it. So many reasons to do it. Some of you, you need to be baptized. Some of you who have been baptized need to repent. See, this message is really for all of us. If we really want to make this the year of our Lord rather than the year of our own selfish desires, then we must look at these passages in Luke and, and take these seriously. 
All right, that's about all I needed to say today. I went a little bit over, but that's okay. I'm not supposed to say that, uh, that I go over, because people are okay with maybe five, ten minutes over. Anyways, I, I'm always very mindful of the time because I'm a theater guy, and, you know, if Act 1 takes a little too long, then, it's, uh, then Act 2 is going to bore people. Anyways, that's just my stuff that I have to deal with. It's great that you're tuning in. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, I will uh, invite you once again, if you're ever in the Central Oregon area, in the Powell Butte area, uh, we have Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 and at 11.30, and we would love to have you. And Come on up and introduce yourself and say, I heard you on the podcast. That would be awesome. All right, have a great week, and uh, we will catch you next week.